cliffcentral.com. Well, it's a very good morning to you. My name is Dr. Cindy Fansale, and we are chatting this morning to Doctors Without Borders, MSF, and I'll be chatting to Barry um, Lagrange, and he works for MSF Southern Africa. So for those of you that don't really know what MSF does, MSF is the, it's an international humanitarian organization, and they basically deal with humanitarian crises. So we'll be catching up with Barry to find out what's happening with um, Ebola, what's happening, you know, what happened during the xenophobic attacks in, in South Africa, the recent xenophobic attacks, and also to find out about Migration. I mean, there's a lot that we've seen on TV about people migrating from, you know, across the Mediterranean Sea, and and yeah, and all the work around that. So we have Bori on Skype. He's he's with us from Brussels. Good morning, Bori. Hi. Good morning, Sunny. Good morning to everybody at home or in your car or on your phone who's listening to us. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm really glad to have you. And what time is it there, by the way? Uh, 9:03. Oh, okay. So you're in the same time zone as we are. Mm. Oh, okay, yeah. great. Okay. So first things first, Barry, let's just find out, um, yeah, what is MSF and how did you end up working with MSF? Okay. So MSF or Doctors Without Borders is a, it's a medical humanitarian organization. And, um, in times of crisis, either when there's a conflict, uh, an epidemic like Ebola or potentially a, a disaster, a natural man-made disaster for that matter. Yeah. Let's say like an earthquake like in Nepal or in Haiti. Uh, we have medical teams that are able to respond to people's needs. And this would range anything from um, trauma care, so when people have uh, suffered significant injuries, when they require surgery or uh, other medical needs, anything from, um, you know, for instance, if someone uh, their access to life-saving ARVs has been disrupted in a conflict uh, or during a disaster. We, we try and bridge that gap. But we also provide a lot of care for um, uh, pregnant women and children. Uh, yeah. We provide uh, nutritional support. Um, I'm thinking, for instance, of what's happening currently in South Sudan, where due to conflict, people have been displaced. Uh, for several months, uh, and, and uh, they uh, they don't have access to to proper food or, or any kind of uh, proper sh- shelter. Yeah. So this is these are the times when um, when our medical teams respond, and we work in uh, roughly seventy countries around the world. Yeah. Including South Africa and several countries in Southern Africa, where predominantly our work's related to providing uh, uh, HIV and TB care, and in particular focusing on uh, drug resistant types of TB. And we know that these are the more difficult types of TB to treat because we don't have um, today in the world, we don't have access to uh, to newer, more effective means or newer, more effective drugs that are more affordable. Yeah. And the other thing I wanted to say was that um, MSF works in all countries. I mean, we don't they, they don't have a political affiliation of any sort. You're able to work in any country that needs help, right? Yeah, that's true. And um, the reason for this is uh, it's a decision by us as an organization. It's important for us to remain independent and impartial and neutral. It allows us to therefore work in conflict zones so that there's no question about what motivates our, our provision of assistance to uh, whoever needs it, uh, whether it be people who have um, who've been wounded in the conflict as participants or uh, predominantly whether they're civilians, people who've been caught in the crossfire. Um, so the, the reason, uh, you know, the reason why this remains important for us is, uh, it allows us greater flexibility. So we can literally work anywhere in the world where we're understood and where we're accepted. Mm. Um, and this is all born out of something very simple, really. Um, we're able to do this work. We're able to respond really quickly because, um, ordinary people decide to support our work, mm. um, through donations. 
And this really allows us to say we're providing medical care for people, funded by people with no agendas of anyone. Mm. So, um, yeah, that's uh, that's the long and short of it. And I must say, I mean, that's, I think that's always the thing with, um, with any donor organizations or anyone coming from outside to help in a certain country. You always want to know what is it, you know, what's in it for them? Why are they helping us? Is there an ulterior motive? And, and MSF's work, there is never an ulterior motive. All you want to do is to help people and make sure people, you know, get what they need to help them to survive. That's right. But I think we're also living in a world where even if you're in, <clears throat> sorry, in a remote area of Pakistan or in South Sudan, you know, people will ask you, like, where do you get your money from? You know, yeah. do you get your money from the U.S. government? Do you get your money from, uh, you know, another kind of government? Yeah. So uh, people are not naive. Um, I think people understand that um, states, that governments sometimes abuse the provision of aid to yeah. um, follow through on their own uh, political objectives. And so it's um, for many people, it's it's reassuring and it's important to hear that um, the, the support that we provide, the medical care we provide, is completely with uh, no strings attached and really just focused on putting patients first. Mm. I mean, growing up for me, MSF was always an aspiration. I must tell you, even before I became a medical doctor, I always had this thing that I'd either work for the World Health Organization, the United Nations, or MSF. And unfortunately, I've had, you know, I've had close interactions with MSF, and I think MSF really rules in terms of of something to aspire to. But I know that your organize, the organization doesn't only work with medical doctors. I think that's something people need to know. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I think the the name is a bit of a misnomer. Yeah. In the sense that um, you know those are the people who are doing the the frontline care, but behind them is uh, is a legion of other people, uh, logisticians, uh, uh, even people who are anthropologists, for instance. Mm. So everything that goes into making medical care possible in often some of the most hosp- uh, inhospitable or dangerous places requires uh, a big machine behind it. And that's exactly it. We wouldn't have been able to respond to the Ebola outbreak uh, in three countries, uh, being able to to admit uh, close on 10,000 patients um, since the start of the outbreak, mm. if it weren't for a strong logistics uh, capacity. So that means being able to fly at the height of the epidemic, three 747s, uh, per week to deliver more goods that were required in the in the eight or so uh, Ebola treatment centers that we were running. Um, we any hospital, as you know, requires a, a reliable uh, supply of uh, electricity and water. And when we start talking about uh, intervening in refugee camps uh, where you've got a mass displacement upwards of uh, 10,000 people in a camp, uh, you need to provide them with adequate water and sanitation because otherwise you are going to run into additional problems, waterborne diseases and the like. So uh, providing medical care is one aspect, but it's also about providing supportive elements to doing the, 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 the medical action in the field. And so we've also sort of uh, gained experience in rehabilitating hospitals uh, implementing really uh, rapid fixes to a problem. Yeah. So, for instance, in earthquakes where you've got the uh, uh, the local health infrastructure, hospitals and the like uh, decimated, you need to put, uh, uh, let's say, for instance, if you were, were to, to do operations to try yeah. and save people's limbs, you'd need to do that in a safe environment. So we've developed uh, something that's called an inflatable hospital. Mm allows us to um, really quickly within a couple of hours, about uh, 48 hours or so, go from no hospital to a um, 
100-bed facility that has uh, two operating theater capacity and can be adapted according to to the needs. Now, this is something that develops over time um, in a similar way in, in 2005 with the earthquake in Pakistan where um, we used a container hospital. Mm. If you uh, if you're able to kind of get your goods into the country and your uh, supplies into the country, you can pretty rapidly respond to to needs and uh, as they evolve, keep changing your your uh, your facility. And 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 so you're, at the moment you're in Brussels, right? And the meeting that you're attending, what is that all about, Barry? Mm. So every year, um, our organization has a, an annual general meeting, if you will. Yeah. Um, and this is where members of, of our organization come together and they, they debate and decide on pertinent topics. Uh, one of the, one of the big topics for this year, of course, was Ebola. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it was a moment for us to reflect on what had gone before over the last year or so. It was certainly the, the biggest uh, in terms of scale and intensity, Ebola outbreak. And I think it was a humbling experience, <clears throat> sorry, because um, there were several uh, colleagues of ours from uh, Liberia. Yeah. And they spoke very um, passionately and eloquently about their own personal experiences trying to, to stop what seemed to be an unstoppable epidemic uh, that frightened and horrified the world. Uh, to such an extent that, that many countries didn't act at all and um, people were basically left to, to, to face it on their own. Mm. MSF was able to, to try and put forward a response, um, but in doing so, because we were one of the only organizations providing sort of like if you want to call it frontline care. Yeah, after everyone you know, had fled, yeah. The rest of the world tends to look at you and say, well, you know, you're doing such a fantastic job. Um, you know, how do you do it? Won't you take on more responsibility and do more? And it's exactly at that stage where, where our colleagues say, but you know, this is actually unacceptable that a private organization is seen as the, the world's sort of Ebola force that, that's, uh, you know, can't tell us a very good thing about the world. You know, we need a strong uh, World Health Organization to, to be able to, to mount uh, responses for, for global epidemics like this. So, um, one of them uh, as well, our colleague Patrick, he, um, he's actually an Ebola survivor. And he spoke, um, I mean, the words that for me echo still today is he said, never again. This shouldn't ever, ever happen again. Yeah. And so uh, I think while it's, um, you know, a couple of months ago, we were all focused on uh, on these people in the yellow suits and yeah. uh, the difficulty of working in, in Ebola treatment centers. And the world was still very scared of Ebola, um, especially if it were to reach the U.S. and in, or the Europe in, in larger numbers. But um, the important part is that it still continues. It's uh, still an active epidemic in, uh, sorry, in uh, Sierra Leone. And in, and and in, in Guinea, Guinea um, yeah. Yeah. So we're at, at this stage in Liberia, um, I think on the 9th of May, the epidemic was declared over. There'd been no new cases over a period of 42 days. So uh, we could say that things are looking good in Liberia. But uh, as long as there's one active case of Ebola in the world, it's still uh, it's still an active epidemic, and there's still a risk um, for other people to contract it as well. Yeah. So the the epidemic in Guinea is still very unpredictable. Um, we still find that there's a couple of cases uh, that are that are still uh, ongoing, and in Sierra Leone as well. Uh, and I think the, the difficulty here is these countries, their health systems are very weak. Yeah. Uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, that range from uh, having to still now almost after 20, 20 years or, or more uh, recovering from uh, from civil wars, but also in other ways where 
their governments signed structural adjustment packages with uh, the World Bank or the IMF, um, which uh, essentially hamstrung their governments in terms of uh, um, uh, paying uh, people working in the, the health sector um, adequate salaries. And so you find that social spending with the structural adjustment package decreases, um, and this doesn't allow you to, to have a well-funded health system. And that's exactly what you need to uh, remain on top of epidemics yeah. um, and breaks. I think, if anything, the Ebola um, 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 epidemic caught those countries by surprise and exposed their health systems. It, 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 oh, it, it was bad. It, it's, it's been very bad. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, those, those health systems were exposed, but I think also the way in which the world also looked at it. Um, everybody sort of works off the premise that you're able to take care of your own uh, population with a, a surveillance system that allows you to detect um, the transmission of uh, dangerous disease like Ebola. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's it's also fair to reflect on it, the highly unusual nature of the, the epidemic, considering that it was not just in isolated pockets in a very rural um, areas, but it, it was uh, transmitted in cities. Yeah. And many more, thousands more people were infected than you would normally expect. Yeah. But that still... Um, does not excuse um, uh, World Health, uh, the World Health Organization, or uh, and I think particularly also like the leaders of um, of other countries, UN member states, yeah. that uh, you know we, we they they can't uh, continue to look away or look the other way. There are obligations on them as well. Yeah. So you know, this instance, I think this weekend was really uh, a moment for for quite deep reflection, and mm. we also spoke quite a bit about migration. So uh, we had colleagues from Italy. <clears throat> colleagues from Greece mm. talking about uh, their experience uh, and in terms of trying to provide assistance for people who've crossed the Mediterranean. Um, currently, there are two boats, uh, rescue uh, rescue craft that uh, MSF is, is staffing with uh, nurses and doctors aboard. Yeah. And so these crafts uh, are located in the Mediterranean Ocean. And uh, when they get uh, distress signals relayed to them from the Italian Coast Guard, um, they're able to go and investigate and see the the boats that, that have sent these distress signals or if there's been reports. And then they're able to take um, large groups of migrants aboard um, the two craft, the MI Phoenix and the MI uh, Bourbon Argos. Okay. Uh, where people can, can get immediate uh, medical attention. So far, people seem to be in pretty okay health, apart from uh, many of them suffering hypothermia. Yeah. Um, really extensive cramps, because if you, you were to pick up a, a people from a, a wooden fishing boat where you've got uh, upwards of 350 people crammed in tiny spaces onto the boat, standing for several hours, hmm. it's an incredibly uncomfortable situation for, for people, and uh, what to say, not only dangerous, hmm. um, I'm reminded of one incident where um, one of our doctors explained that uh, by the time they reached one of these fishing vessels, a small wooden uh, fishing boat, uh, people were already uh, ankle deep in water. So it's only a matter of hours before that boat uh, was to sink. Uh, and this is out in the in the middle of the ocean. So there's really mm. no hope for you um, if if that's the situation that you're faced with. So. Um, it's another part of our work that's important is to try and be where the need is. And in this instance, um, if that means having to take to a boat, then that's what we'll have to do. You know, yeah. We do whatever it takes to provide 
access to to life saving care. And how many so people? So there's are still a large number of pregnant women that are on those birds. To these birds. Oh, Bori. And how many people have have died so far? Um, you know, crossing crossing the Mediterranean. Um, so the suggestion is that uh, up until 2014, um, the Italian government and the um, the European Union were able to to run rescue operations of this nature. Yeah. Um, and at that stage, <clears throat> excuse me. At that stage, things were were going pretty okay. And this uh, operation called Mare Nostrum mm-hmm. rescued about 150,000 people over the course of a year. Yeah. And then quickly, what happened is. Uh, European governments uh, decided that well they they were no longer uh, interested in, uh, in uh, spending that amount of money, and the operation was downsized, mm. and um, essentially it became more of a I, I guess what you could call a a sort of border protection uh, initiative uh, mm. uh, on the sea, and so um, the suggestion is that so far uh, this year alone uh, roughly three thousand people have perished uh, oh, already. Man. Uh, in the Mediterranean. So these are our estimates, and I think the the most recent incident that, that caught the world's attention was when uh, a boat carrying about 750 people um, capsized. Yeah, I remember uh, that. And uh, yeah, but uh, I think it's you know just as xenophobia in South Africa is like an ongoing problem, you know, just because it's not in the headlines doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Um, you know, over the, over the course of many years. Uh, people uh, in southern Europe um, have noticed uh, people coming ashore, having survived horrific, uh, horrific uh, uh, open water disasters. All bodies have washed up on the, on on the beaches, shore, yeah. but many more remain lost at sea, and their families back home will never know what happened to them. Mm. Uh, so, uh, you know, this is something that will continue. You know, for as long as people have been around, they've been moving. Mm. <laughs> and, and that's, that's uh, who we are. We move around. That's, that's what we do. Uh, that's what we do, that's, yeah. I think what, what's helped uh, humans survive. Um, but uh, what we found is we've made things pretty complicated uh, with uh, the idea of uh, drawing artificial lines on a, on a map and then saying this is where one country starts and that's where another ends. And then basing a lot of our ideas and things that we hold very dearly uh, to the, the confines of a, a square shape on a map mm. somewhere. Uh, and that's sort of, we, we find it's very comfortable to say everything that's outside of this line Must is stay our out. responsibility yeah. and everything inside is. Yeah. Um, but in fact, uh, it's, uh, you know, countries have borders, people don't, uh, and medical needs stretch across those borders too. It's, um, it's, uh, well, I think we as an organization, as individuals that work for MSF, you know, we feel we want to, we want to push limits. We want to go beyond what's, what's prescribed in a, in a very narrow way because we know that, that people need help. Yeah, and that and the other thing, Bori, um, just I think this is, this is what I love the most about MSF is how the organisation is able to speak without fear. I mean, you you call it as it is. There's no pussyfooting around any topic. Yeah, I think it's it's part of our DNA in a way. Uh, yeah, when, we, when the organisation was started about forty years ago, that was precisely because um, uh, at that stage there was a, a brutal civil war on the go in. Um, in Nigeria, where part of Nigeria wanted to secede, um, and the, the the government of the day was trying to quash that sort of rebellion, if you will. Yeah. And um, there were doctors from the International Committee of the Red Cross that were working, providing uh, medical care to people in this conflict. 
and what they saw um, horrified them, but uh, they couldn't uh, they couldn't tell the world because uh, the 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 rules of the ICRC doesn't permit it to to speak out. So they they went back home, they returned to Europe to France, and in 1971 these doctors teamed up with a group of medical journalists and they then formed this organization called Médecins Sans Frontières mm. or Doctors Without Borders. And the, one of the, the premises of it was yes to to react quickly with uh, medical care in terms of in times of crisis, but also to bear witness to to what's happening, to mm. say uh, why things are the way they are, how they've uh, come to be that way, and to to strengthen the voices of people who are affected in these situations. And so, you know, sometimes it's not always an MSF doctor or nurse that's uh, speaking out, as, as we call it. But it's often patience, and I think it's vital that um, you know when when the world looks at, at our organisation, it doesn't just see doctors and nurses, but it actually sees people speaking out for themselves, telling their own stories, um, and to some degree uh, being able to to hold to account uh, those who have failed them. Yeah, that's so important. And your involvement with Doctors Without Borders, when did that begin, Barry? Um, it's, I think it's, uh, I was trying to explain it to somebody else this weekend as well. If you're uh, working with MSF or Doctors Without Borders for long enough, you tend to feel some, at some point that, oh, I think I've seen this before. <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember back in, you know, and this happened. And I, I think for me this, this year it was, um, uh, well, personal in the sense that uh, in 2008, when last um, there were significant uh, a significant level of, of xenophobic violence in South Africa. Um, I was still working as a journalist, um, yeah. and I was covering the story, going from camp to camp, speaking to people about their experiences, like what conditions were like in these camps. Because uh, if we remember, at that stage, about 120,000 people were were displaced uh, in uh, across the country. The majority of them in Gauteng. Um, people were seeking uh, refuge and, and shelter outside or inside police stations. And then eventually when um, the South African authorities acknowledged the extent of the, the situation, uh, they they were able to provide uh, accommodation in displacement camps. And uh, it's on one of those days actually where I was sort of having conversations with people in some of these displacement camps, uh, you know, getting to know them, getting to understand their stories, what they'd gone through, the reasons why they'd fled um, from uh, from the DRC or Zimbabwe or, or, or um, Malawi, Mozambique, like why they're actually they've come to South Africa. I happened to find some people from MSF there, and I was a bit sort of intrigued by by their presence and and what they were doing and how they they were working. And um, yeah, about a year after that, I, I joined MSF mm. and I've uh, been with MSF since. So this year, when we see the resurgence of violence and, and xenophobic attacks again, I'm sort of reminded of the fact that you know there's a bit of a cyclical nature to this, yeah. And that if um, if we're really honest with ourselves, uh, this shouldn't be happening. You know, we should we should have found ways collectively in South Africa from uh, the authority side, but also as individuals, to prevent this from happening. Yeah. So it's uh, it's a bit of a hard thing uh, to admit. That uh, I think collectively we failed uh, in a way. If we're if we're still stuck with 550 people who are in a displacement camp today in um, in Durban, and they're they're telling us that they're often too afraid to leave that camp. You know, they have a very uncertain future. 
So um, while it's uh, important for local authorities to to want to relocate people, to reintegrate them in communities, you know that shouldn't be done at the cost of uh, a person's sense of uh, of safety uh, and due regard to what they have as legitimate fears for their future. Yeah. Well, Barry, we're going to take a, a song break now, but after the song break, I'd like to play um, a, um, a clip uh, uh, on xenophobia and then we'll pick up the conversation after that. Perfect. I am the future of South Africa. On my shoulders, I carry the hopes and dreams of generations to come. I'm eager to learn, but even more eager to use my knowledge for good. I know that it's not where I come from, but where I'm going to that really matters. At Sibanya Gold, we believe our youth is worth its weight in gold, which is why we are so committed to developing, nurturing, and grooming our young people into future leaders. Sibanya Gold, we are one. My name is Amuri Juma and I am from the DRC and I'm in South Africa for 11 good years. I came to South Africa due to the war that took place in my country and I flee to South Africa to seek protection and uh, to seek a refuge. Since 2004 that I came into South Africa, I was uh, doing haircut. A few years later, I started doing carpentry business. And then in 2010, I opened my, I opened a furniture shop and I'm uh, doing built-in carpet. I remember in 2008, the government promised that this thing, the issue of xenophobia happened by mistake and it was not going to happen anymore. But this is happening today in 2015. Those uh, xenophobic attacks and violence, it's something that we have been experiencing years back through different ways. No matter this time around, it had to erupt in a way that everybody could see and hear about it. Uh, right now, we are in a dilemma. We are in a conflict of choice. We don't know what to do because we here, we are from Burundi and Congo, so we would like to go back into, uh, into our countries. But there's a still war. The situation is not yet good. Going back to the community is something very jeopardizable for us because the community uh, are determined not to, to get rid of us. It's very dangerous to go back to the community. The way we're surviving might be the reason why they hate us. A lot of things happen where the right, where, I mean, justice doesn't play its part. So whatever is happening today, we have seen it in 2014 last year. Uh, there's foreigners who were trading in a certain um, block where there is a rank. They chased them, they confiscated their goods, they hit some of us, they poked some of us with knives, they attacked the, the shops, and then the police did nothing. Did nothing in terms of the law. We were exposed to those criminals looting our shop by killing us, by burning us. This issue of xenophobia is something that is in the mind, is in the flesh of the community. So whatever just happened, something that is within 
at the end of the day, we need protection. We need safety. We need a future. We should be treated like a, like human, like they are. Because even themselves, they are human like us. Yeah, yeah, that was deep. Um, if you've just tuned in, uh, this is Dr. Cindy Fansale at Doc Cindy, D-O-C-S-I-N-D-I on Twitter. And I'm chatting to, um, Barry Lagrange from MSF, Doctors Without Borders. Yeah, Barry, that, yeah, that is a very touching clip. Yeah, um, I think for us, you know, if you, if you're providing medical care, you need to be next to someone. I mean, you, you, you'll know this from your, your own experiences as a doctor is, uh, you, you can't always do the best medicine if it's via Skype or at a distance. You need mm-hmm. to be in the same room with someone. And sometimes that room is in a war zone. Sometimes that room for us is, is in a camp. Um, and you start also, I guess, realizing when you take down a patient history, um, what's happened in, in a person's life, what, uh, how their daily life impacts on their health. And sometimes uh, what we've seen with uh, the displacement camps in Durban that were set up after this recent wave of xenophobia is we started seeing that uh, apart from people's physical health, also their mental health uh, was uh, was an issue. People uh, bore the scars of, of many years of trauma, um, either from having to flee uh, war back home in uh, in DRC or Burundi, as, as many people told us, mm. or the the extreme difficulties and difficult choices, decisions that people have to make um, when they they leave countries like Malawi, which uh, is a very poor country, where where people look at the the prospect potentially of earning like 300 rand a week as something far better as what they could do at home, and it's this desperation that compels them to move. So if it's not conflict, then it's a different type of desperation that, that uh, compels people to come to South Africa in search of uh, something, some relief from unlivable conditions mm, back home. Life. Mm. And it's exactly this kind of mental trauma that uh, when we had a, a team of psychologists um, going around in the, in the camp doing interviews of people, understanding what their uh, their experiences have been that they uncovered that uh, people had suffered cumulative traumas. So as I explained, the trauma of having to leave uh, leave behind uh, loved ones uh, in a in a war zone or having to lose a loved one in a war zone, uh, and then uh, being subjected to discrimination upon reaching South Africa again, where people are sometimes turned away from uh, facilities, hospitals. Um, are not uh, considered by by the police when they want to report incidents where they've uh, been the victims of crime and just generally have a, a very alienating experience uh, any, any, in many aspects of their life. If it's even just in the neighborhoods where they live or getting onto a minibus taxi or, uh, or very simple experiences become quite tense and, and, and fraught with a lot of... Uh, uh, with a lot of trauma for people. Yeah. So uh, in working in these camps, what our psychologists were able to do was to do counseling sessions with uh, individuals, adults, and also children, yeah. uh, and also groups to equip them with some tools to to uh, work through the emotions that they have, but also to, in some way, uh, regain control or a feeling of control in their lives, which I think if you're if you've been dispossessed of the little that you had in the first place, uh, your life's been threatened with violence. Um, you've seen uh, your your neighbours in many instances turn against you. Yeah. Uh, you are very likely to feel very alone and very distressed. 
um, and at the same time very distrustful of uh, of uh, the authorities, uh, people promising you things. Um, and so it's it's trying to help people to regain a, a sense of self, mm. but also a sense of purpose in their lives. Mm. Uh, so for now, there's about 550 people that still remain in the chats with displacement camp. Yeah. And they're the, the last of the last. Um, they're the people who uh, weren't able to be repatriated um, back home because yeah. uh, home for them is a country that's unstable or at war. Mm. Uh, Burundi today, for instance, or the DRC. And so these Burundian and DRC refugees are basically stuck uh, between a rock and a hard place with the additional stress of not being able to return, as, as uh, Amori Juma explained very eloquently, because, um, because they're afraid of the community. And if there's a reintegration process on the go, this process shouldn't uh, outpace what's being done to repair those relationships of trust. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's really really touching. I think, all it, you know, hearing it from an individual, hearing a person's story makes a huge difference mm-hmm. to understanding, you know, the the whole thing. The yeah, other thing that's on exactly yeah. why, that's exactly why when when we work in the camps, these stories touch our staff. Um, I think perhaps for me and for many other people, the most touching story really is um, of a nurse, Elvira Mozero who um, comes from Burundi. Mm. Uh, she came to South Africa in 2004 after losing her dad um, in the conflict. He was shot at their house. Uh, nobody was able to provide him with uh, medical care, and he basically died in in, um, in front of his family. And this mm. affected Elvira a lot, and that's what she told us when we did a short interview with her. And um, that's what motivated her to become a nurse. And then when she came to South Africa, she studied... Um, uh, to become a nurse, and she sought work. And basically through her work as a medical professional, she treats everybody, and that's what she says when she tells her story. You know, everybody comes to her. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter whether you're a South African or Nigerian or Burundian, you know, and it's it's as if, you know, she doesn't see nationality. She only sees need, very much like um, the people who work for MSA, for Doctors Without Borders. You know, we don't care where you come from. We just, we're, we're able to be there, to be with you, to help you. Yeah. And so I think Alvira's story is, it demonstrates a lot of things. It demonstrates how um, a person who suffered trauma herself is able to uh, to feel that, that she can contribute positively to South Africans' lives or anybody's life, really, that requires help, but that these people are not immune to suffering xenophobia themselves um, mm. and being subjected to quite um, nasty and quite horrible things that... Um, Endangers their lives, but also as uh, as human beings, um, damage their dignity, denies them their dignity. Yeah. So you know, through these collecting these types of stories, um, we thought, well, we need to share them with South Africans because we need to bear witness to what we're seeing. Mm. But we also need to allow people to tell their own stories. So create. So we created a, a series of um, short videos called Voices from the Camps. Okay. And we released these videos uh, just uh, around uh, Africa Day. Yeah. Um, and they tell the different stories from individuals like Elvira, Amri, uh, the, the man you listened to just now, uh, Martin, another man from the DRC, and also uh, a Malawian migrant, a man by the name of Stephen, who says, well, uh, you know, as soon as things are quiet again, he's going to return to South Africa yeah. um, because uh, that's, he's, he's had a job here for several years. Um, and he's uh, he's intent on returning. And then also we, we heard the story of a, a young girl, Dolly. She's nine years old. When you ask her, 
who she is, she'll tell you she's a South African. She was born in South Africa, but her mum was born in Mozambique. Okay. So um, there's several children also that are still in this camp, and for many weeks now they've uh, they haven't been able to go to school. Uh, they've also had to work through some trauma, and so it's really important for us, at least, that in telling these stories and sharing these stories um, through voices uh, from the camps, that South Africans understand a bit more clearly what the, the personal and very human toll is of the violence. And maybe that helps us um, also understand how and why uh, people people flee the countries they're from yeah. and take big risks uh, in coming to South Africa sometimes, but also take uh, enormous risk when they travel for thousands of kilometers only to reach the Mediterranean and then uh, take on an even larger risk uh, when, they, when they board rickety fishing boats. Hmm. In terms of um, handing over projects, because I mean, I used to work for an um, HIV NGO and one of the, the, the biggest problems is that as a funding shrinks, you need to hand projects over. So the, you know we've done skills transfers, and you know we're watching some of the programs f- floundering because you know when we do the work, everyone um, is willing to do the work. The moment we're saying we're handing over and we're pulling out, then things start going a bit awry. Um, how does MSF ensure that projects continue even when you've pulled out? When we do an initial needs assessment, when um, when we're contemplating uh, a, a project. You know, sometimes that needs to happen really quickly in an emergency setting. So, for instance, in Nepal, um, you really quickly had to to make a choice about what your response would look like. Yeah. And that sort of it shapes the way in which you design your project, the number of people that you employ, how you interact with uh, the Ministry of Health and and other local authorities. But right from the start, for our project team leaders, when they develop these plans, they need to keep in mind that these projects will not last forever. We're an emergency medical humanitarian organization. We're not a development uh, organization. So for us, we we need to be clear with everybody that we work with that that's the case so that there's no confusion uh, when it comes at the end of the, the project's lifespan um, that people have misunderstood somehow that we would be there forever. Mm. Um, so it's the same way in which uh, we feel that uh, we're there to provide medical care and once, uh, once a person has been... Uh, assisted in that way, um, they have the ability to, to take their lives in their own hands and to continue. Um, you know, we're, we're not uh, paternalistic or anything like that. But as you mentioned, it's really difficult um, to, to, to ensure that that's understood and that it's, uh, it's not a long-term developmental goal um, that we have, but really to alleviate um, suffering and to provide assistance in very acute situations where there is uh, very often no other option. So right from the start, we, we develop a way in which we think of uh, how would we do a handover, to who can we hand over. Yeah. Would we be providing services that are not replicable by other organizations? And so even uh, if we're running a, a refugee camp in, in Mauritania, I, I happen to speak to one of our uh, field workers who's been working in this camp for, for several months. Yeah. You need to know who the other organizations are and what they're doing. And maybe in some instances, you also need to think creatively of how you can encourage others to take on more responsibility um, and you have a long-term mandate. And this is all, uh, you know, there's no hard and fast rules for how to do this. Yeah. A lot of it depends on having personal experience and uh, being able to be a good negotiator, um, somebody who can see, uh, you know, what the situation is on the ground and 
how to adapt your own response and encourage others to perhaps take on more responsibility. Mm. We do an awful lot of training as well. Um, so I think a good example, for instance, is uh, during the Ebola emergency, um, it was a sort of an unenviable role to be the organization that uh, was sort of uh, leading to some way the, the the response just because there was no one else and then uh, we decided we realized that look we have limits ourselves you know we we, we can't we can only do so much do everything yeah and so we've succeeded in training thus far well over a thousand people uh, yeah. in terms of running uh, and to safely run Ebola treatment centers but I think in the same respect these, these centers aren't necessarily the ultimate solution what you ultimately really need is a strong health system mm. that's able to to, um, keep track of people who've uh, become infected with Ebola. And this, this weekend, again, like we spoke a, a bit earlier about this, um, the discussions I've been involved in this weekend, and that was one of the things in the Ebola session that we spoke about, is it's important for these countries, um, Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea, to be able to share information about the epidemics mm. uh, amongst uh, themselves to help their responses. Because we also acknowledged uh, before when we spoke a little bit about how, how people keep on moving. This was another uh, element of uh, Ebola responses. People were moving across, you know, borders that are, you know, artificial lines in a map, but actually it's, it's one piece of um, jungle where some, someone just has to cross a couple of kilometers. And they're in another country. country. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, you know, how do you, how do you manage to keep track of those things? How do you manage to, Share that information quickly enough so you can adapt your response. Yeah. And for the field workers coming back from situations, I mean, I know that, you know, field workers are everywhere. I mean, Syria, for example, in there's people in Syria, people that are working in the Ebola affected countries. What kind of support does Doctors Without Borders provide for field workers when they come back? Psychosocial supports. I mean, I know that uh, with the work that I did in Soweto, I just used to cry, Bori. That's the only way I could cope with the things that I used to see. There was no psychotherapy or anything else. Just crying used to help me. But, you know, how do you guys... De- de- it, I think, yeah. 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 No, it's, a, it's a difficult question um, because it's really about uh, people who decide to work for doctors at our borders. Take, uh, it's, it's an individual choice. Mm. Nobody's forcing you to do this. Um, but you also need to, to know your own limits and you need to... Speak up when, when you've reached the point where, where you yourself need help. So, um, we've got, uh, psychosocial support through, through our, our HR department. Um, so right from the start, when someone applies to work with us, they go through a very rigorous, um, assessment process where we look at the person's professional qualifications, mm-hmm. their ability to work in teams because there's no, uh, you know, there's no individual efforts. It may be an individual decision to start working for but us. But you're working as a team. Yeah, you're not out on your own. You know, you are what you are through the other people that you work with. Oh, so absolutely. it's humbling in that sense. Um, and then once these assessment centers are complete, um, people will get assigned to, to a particular project in a particular country where the need is. So it's not as if you have a choice first time around. Okay. Um, but then even while you're in the field, um, your, your team leader will um, keep in good contact with you and um, essentially try and identify if there are problems that do come up. But um, also on return, if people feel, uh, field workers, if they feel they need support, uh, we've got a, um, a staff health uh, department in, inside the organization that provides uh, those kind of consultations, consultative services where people can speak about their experiences 
Um, and then when a person says, look, um, I've reached my limit. I, 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 I can't continue. You know, there's, there's nothing that's held against this person. Um, and they can then leave if they so choose. Um, okay. there's not very many people that do this. Um, but I think it's also testament to the kind of commitment that field workers have. Is they understand the, the risks involved and they understand the sacrifices that they need to make. But they also understand the benefit that they, um, they're able to give people who go without medical care, um, mm. because they're out of sight and out of mind for most people in the world. Mm. And apart from Ebola, what's, what's the, um, other, like, most difficult mission that you've ever embarked on? I know Syria was a tough one. Yeah, the conflict in Syria um, still continues today. It's uh, been four, over four years now. Um, as an organization, we faced really difficult times there. And so um, it's incredibly restrictive in terms of what we can do and where we've got access. Um, so uh, we try and support also local networks of doctors uh, with supplies. Um, and sometimes, unfortunately, that's the best we can do. In some instances, we're not able to um, have our own people on the ground. Um, yeah. And we know that if, if that's the case, then the situation is much worse for ordinary people who are just trying to survive what is a very vicious and a nasty conflict that continues today. So um, it sometimes also means that in South Sudan um, or in Yemen, uh, hospitals uh, will sometimes get targeted um, uh, by people who are involved in the conflict, armed groups uh, or militaries. And then we have to stop what we're doing and we need to pull people out because we don't want to uh, be reckless and endanger people's lives, mm. be that either our patients or our, our staff. So we've had instances already this year where that had to happen, where we temporarily pulled out staff out of uh, certain parts of South Sudan. Um, more recently also had to close down some of our activities in um, north uh, northeastern Kenya in the Dadaab refugee camp, mm-hmm. where today 350,000 Somalis still live uh, in, in really particularly horrible conditions. Uh, and don't have access to medical care. And because of the insecurity, we, we had to diminish our activities. Now, you know, that's one thing for us to do, but we're, we're doing, taking that really hard decision with the full knowledge that, um, people will be left without care. Oh, that uh, must be so difficult. But, but I think what we need to keep in mind in instances like this is, you know, we're, we're not all powerful. There are others who are also responsible and make decisions. And these are leaders, whether they're political leaders or leaders from armed groups. And they also have a responsibility to the people in the territories that they control. Yeah. So I think, you know, the, the kind of people that end up working for us uh, are quite special in the sense that, you know, it's a, it's a personal commitment. Mm. Uh, you work long hours, you work in difficult places. Um, but I think the thing that's common in all of them is they have this deep desire to push limit. They have a deep desire um, born from a, a, a sense of, of um, refusing to accept that this is the way the world is and, you know, we, can, we can't do anything about it. They, they rebel against that. Mm. They say no. You know, we are going to be able to provide medical care to, to people in, uh, in war zones because that's where the needs are. Yeah. That's what drives us. That's what compels us. So if people are curious about this, um, we've actually started a, a sort of mini campaign around it called uh, Push the Limits. Okay. So you go to www.msf.org.za forward slash push the limits. Okay. And you can take a quiz to try and figure out whether, whether you're maybe a good fit with MSF. So we'll ask you questions about your qualifications, but we'll also present you with a, a scenario where you have to make certain choices. Um, and I think what's at the heart of, of working for MSF is about making difficult decisions, making those tough decisions 
um, because if you if you do not, uh, you're in inactive, and it's inaction that actually kills. It's silence that kills. Yeah. So our work really is to to provide medical care and to speak out about these needs. Yeah, that's absolutely amazing, Barry. And in terms of, of of the rest of the year, what what projects are are, are you are you currently personally? What are you working on at the moment? Well, in South Africa, we're part of a, um, a coalition of organizations uh, that uh, try to resolve stockouts of um, life-saving drugs. So it's called the Stop Stockouts Project. Yeah. Um, and uh, we, uh, through the work of the, the, the partners, we keep track of um, places where these medicine stockouts happen. Um, but it's not just to kind of keep a tally of which drugs are missing where. It's also to work with the National Department of Health and Provincial Departments of Health to resolve those stockouts so people can go home with drugs uh, in their pocket instead of just having to return home empty-handed and potentially face the, the prospect of developing resistance if they're uh, suffering from TB or if they're um, living with HIV. Yeah. And so... Um, at the Durban AIDS conference in uh, in a couple of days, we'll be launching a, an updated report that takes stock of uh, of the situation at the moment and identifies uh, certain districts in the country where the situation is is uh, not good. Yeah. Uh, but also allows um, the the uh, departments of health in these provinces and the people who are responsible for running. Uh, the supply of drugs in those places to also share and put forward their plans of how they will change it. So it's interesting for us because it's the first report where uh, we're providing an opportunity for them to speak about their own plans to make the system work and to to improve. And we think this is a good way forward on something like stockouts. It's not always a, just simply a case of the um, guys who are making the drugs, uh, the producers <coughs> that are encountering, <coughs> excuse me, Problems, but it's a it's a very complicated and uh, um, uh, sort of a, a you know a longer chain of uh, producers, distributors, orders that need to come in on time, uh, exactly. stock levels need to be monitored at facilities, and so it's a it's quite a complex system to run. Yeah, um, and just to kind of say it's a simple matter that uh, the people who are making the drugs aren't. Aren't doing so properly is is a bit of no, a I, no, I, look, look, I saw that statement. I, I I read those statements and I thought to myself that this is so far from the truth. And I think the Department of Health needs to acknowledge when things aren't working out and 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 be accountable and then see how they can fix the situation. But responding angrily just doesn't work. It does not work. No, I think we also need to listen to what people say, and that's why with stop stockouts, as with many of the other types of things that the MSF gets involved in. And uh, organizations like Treatment Action Campaign, the South African Clinicians Society, uh, <clears throat> you need to be a channel for people's voices. And if yeah. they're standing in a queue and they're told that their drugs are not available, they need some place to go. They need a telephone number that they can call and they need to know that there's somebody else on the other on the other end manning the phone, being able to take down the details. And the next step is to phone uh, the local department and try to figure out how you can solve the problem. It's not to to make um, grand statements uh, in front of the media mm. and to react really whether it doesn't matter who you are. The point is we need to fix things and that means getting our, our hands dirty and that means like finding ways for people to trust us and to have trust in the, the, the health system yeah. so that we can fix things. Because um, us sitting in a room just disagreeing and calling one another names and getting angry at one another isn't going to solve the situation. What is going to solve it is committing to doing the work on the ground and committing with that work that um, it'll be uh, it'll be focused on on keeping the trust of ordinary people. Mm.
That's so important. But thank you so much, Bori. I mean, thank you so much for taking the time to join me via Skype. Um, and in, and yeah, just before the show ends, where can we, yeah, who, you know, we, website, Twitter mm. handle, everything. Yeah. Okay. So it's not my job to give a super long list, but, um, <laughs> I think the <laughs> people hate lists, especially long ones. Um, so the, the best thing is if, if you're curious about, uh, the work that we do in the displacement camps in Durban, um, and if you want to hear more stories like the one of Amuri and the one of Elvira, um, the best thing to do is just uh, amble on over to, to YouTube and just type in Voices uh, from the Camps, MSF. Hit search and then you'll find a little playlist with all those stories. Um, alternatively, uh, visit our website. That's um, www.msf.org.za. Um, and you can find a whole range of information about our activities around the world. Um, you can also find out about how you can work with us uh, and also donate, um, because as we discussed earlier, we're only really able to do um, this work uh, in an independent, impartial, and neutral fashion uh, and being able to respond really rapidly to, to people's needs in times of crisis because ordinary people decide to donate to us. So uh, you can just click on donate and uh, make an instant donation there uh, online, or if you're... Um, inclined to want to get involved a bit uh, sooner and you're listening to the show, uh, you can just grab your cell phone now and uh, SMS the word JOIN, that's J-O-I-N, to the number 42110. And that gives us an immediate donation of 30 Rand. Um, I'll repeat those details again. It's uh, JOIN, J-O-I-N, and you send that to 42110 for an instant 30 Rand donation. Okay. Um, you can follow us on Twitter. Uh, MSF underscore South Africa or look for us on Facebook. Um, Cindy, you and I spoke a bit about the field workers. Um, I think for, for people listening to the show, you're probably wondering whether, you know, who are these people? Are they superheroes? Like, uh, do they wear capes? Um, if you want to see who they are, they're just ordinary people like you and I, but they're just, uh, they've taken a decision, um, that sometimes puts them in, in extraordinary circumstances. And mm. if you want to find out more about them, we post regularly on our Facebook, uh, page. Uh, bits of information about our field workers so you can see them, see who they are, read a bit about them. Uh, but we're also encouraging people to share these stories. Um, and that's, uh, that's one way in which you can do it. Oh, thank you so much. No, it was great chatting to you, Bori. Enjoy your day further. And yeah, thank you very much. Thanks very much for having us. And if people are interested, yeah, visit our website. So it's www.msf.org.za. Cliffcentral.com.